Welcome to episode 29 of the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. We are coming from New Orleans, Louisiana. This is, of course, the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flex. James, what have you seen since the last time we talked? It's been about a month. I mean, besides the, like, bunch of movies that we had to watch for the French Film Festival, uh, I watched the JonBenet Ramsey documentary that got put on Netflix. Is that casting JonBenet? It's really good. Super weird, like... What's the central, like, gimmick to that? Basically, people that lived in Boulder at the time are auditioning to be cast in a movie about John Bonet, so they're acting out like scenes from the murder and like playing the part of, you know, the Ramses. It's really weird. But you get into like kind of the sensationalism of the whole case and then like, I don't know, the pop culture aspect of it. But then all they go in all the conspiracy theories and uh it, it was a really well done thing it was do they really have weird. like people involved with the case talking about it too or just like kind of like research and no talking it's, heads or it, yeah it's just like people in the town of boulder that knew the ramses auditioning to be the ramses so weird and then they kind of give their two cents about you know what they think about the case there's almost um, like an act of killing vibe to that definitely that's yeah. what i was it made me very uncomfortable <laughs> in the in the same way act of killing did yeah um anything else jump out at you is particularly good no i mean that's the thing freshest in my memory what about you well i mean like you said i spent six days in a row at britannia theater watching stuff for french film fest yeah. So I also haven't caught up with that much, but I did watch a movie at 8 a.m. sober yesterday morning, it's early on a Saturday, called We Are the Flesh. Mm-hmm. It's a Mexican-French co-production, and it's kind of in that same vein as like Martyrs and uh, oh, Inside, no. but it's all about sexuality, so it's even like more uncomfortable than like the torture porn aspects of those films. It's this post-apocalypse where a sort of insane man in a cave is getting food from a mysterious source on the other side of a wall uh and everyone else in the city seems to be starving because these two siblings like a brother and a sister encounter him in there and they they, uh have been like struggling to get by in this like post-apocalyptic scenario and he sort of puts them to work in the cave in exchange for giving them the food that he gets from the other side of the wall Mm. and it's something it's simple stuff like bread and eggs but uh, he starts having them make uh, a cavern out of, like, old furniture and tape and cardboard. It doesn't make any sense. It's kind of like this, like, Boonwell, like, existential surrealism uh, where they're working for, like, no particular purpose. Like, the structures they're making have no, mm-hmm. like, function in the world. And the more they get sucked into this guy's, like, personal philosophy that he's been, like, devolving into by himself, he basically convinces them to commit acts of incest and it's God. a uh, unsimulated sex in the movie too. Like it's like hardcore sexual content. Dear Lord, it gets so good though. Like it's one of the. It might be my favorite movie I've seen all year. Oh wow! And you don't. I mean, I'm personally not someone who has any affinity for that extreme side of horror. Uh, but there's something about the surreal existential philosophy in this movie and just the way it's shot that's so arresting and just really beautiful and it does it does have a little bit of like gore and violence but Mm -hmm. mostly the terror is like this like cerebral like cronenberg kind of lovecraftian terror which is usually the stuff that that really wins me over in horror movies uh i really i highly recommend it yeah i'm conflicted it's (laughs) 
It's not an easy watch. And, the, and watching it first thing in the morning on a Saturday was like kind of an interesting uh, way to go about it. But Well, actually, you um, you talking about that and like comparing it to Martyrs, they remind me of a movie I watched last weekend called Kidnapped. I've never heard of it's, it. It's um, basically, it's one of these like home invasion kind of movies, super like bleak, but it's shot in a really kind of cool way, almost like a Brian De Palma did a like home invasion film. There's lots of stuff like following two different uh, characters, like on split screen and then the characters coming together and the Oh, like sisters? Yeah, like sisters where the shots merge. Uh, And it it really is like a very realistic, horrific, just kind of well done home invasion, like definitely one of the best home invasion movies I've ever seen. Like I put it up there like funny games and it is super bleak, though, like there's no light at the end of the tunnel with this movie. But it was definitely like a very thrilling ride. Is it a recent it. release? I think it came out um, maybe about five years ago okay. or so. I, I, I found it at the library, um, but it was it was really good. Yeah. I, I would if you're in the mood for like a really unnerving horror film like this is a good one to go with. OK, so kidnapped and one other one i forgot about i did watch both gremlin gremlins <laughs> movies recently and uh gremlins 2 way better the new batch the new batch way, i don't know there's something like really gleefully just unhinged about that movie that i really appreciate yeah just and like it, the rambo references and like the late night kind of elvira cable access horror stuff like it feels like joe dante like throwing everything he loved about his childhood at the screen at this like unstructured way yeah, it's like poking like poking fun or subverting the whole idea of like doing a sequel cuz the first one I kind of forgot how just like kind of straightforward and it is like just kind of a straightforward scary like family Christmas themed horror cr- comedy. Yeah, but the yeah, the second one there's so many little gags and like also like kind of a cool commentary on corporatism mm-hmm. and so I I that's one case where I would say I enjoyed the sequel more than the original. Yeah. Doesn't Hulk Hogan make a, a cameo in that one as Hulk, well? Hulk Hogan makes a cameo. Uh, Leonard Maltin, okay, <laughs> the film critic, yeah, yeah, makes yeah. a cameo. There's a yeah. Speak well. Speaking of which, this is not a good movie I saw, but I did watch uh, Spy Hard. Oh, jeez. The Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. Oh man, it doesn't hold up. No, it's awful. But it has so many bizarre cameos. Like it's got Mr. T flying a helicopter. It's just it's really awful well um, la- <laughs> last... i don't even know why i brought that up honestly <laughs> like i just am a sucker for leslie nielsen yeah films. me too i mean i'm sure the naked gun movies might hold up or yeah they hold oh yeah they totally hold up yeah. but it's like a lot of the same gags mm-hmm. just like recycled yeah that's kind of late in his like zazz uh career like it was getting kind of like lame at that point also ray charles makes <laughs> Ray. there's a very funny scene where ray charles is driving a bus <laughs> <laughs> I, I just was like, why are you in this movie? I have no idea. But Well, last night I watched that um, documentary Kiki, which is like an update on Paris is Burning. Oh, like yeah. I love sequel. Paris is Burning. I really yeah. wanted to see that. Um, I think we should do a conversation down the road where we talk about those two movies because there's a lot to unpack there. I would love to see Kiki and yeah. I would definitely watch Paris is Burning again. That Ki- was great. Kiki's on VOD now. Like you can rent it. So it is accessible. Uh, it's not as good 
as Paris is burning, mm-hmm. but just like having an update on where that counterculture is and like seeing that it is still like vibrant and punk in a way that a lot of countercultures from that time have, have been sort of assimilated. So does it follow the same characters or it's just following like the scene? It's a basically? it's another it's an update on the New York City um, ballroom culture. Uh, so okay. it's a lot of the same settings. Like you go to these uh, dance halls and you see voguing and you go to the workshops and you see people working on their um, costumes for those competitions. Uh, but it's all very young people. And the, the term kiki is, is like a term for like partying. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, in this context, it it's a subset of ballroom culture that specifically targets kids who are like 15 to 20-ish. Mm-hmm. So it's like the youngest uh, participants in New York City ball culture. Whereas I feel like Paris is Burning was trying to document like all these old mothers who had like uh, formed these houses. Like the house mothers in Kiki are all like in their early 20s. It's like, how are you even a mother to these kids? And then you start to realize that, oh, it's because the kids are like not even of age yet. Yeah. Uh, so it's an interesting movie. It's a good epilogue to Paris is Burning. And I think if we talked about the two of them together, oh, I think get a lot more out of it. Yeah, yeah. let's do that. Yeah. Well, um, today we're going to be talking about all the movies I saw at French Film Fest. Uh, James caught up with a good few of them as well. Uh, it was an intense week of artsy, fartsy cinema at, yeah. at the Britannia Theater. Um, and for a little bit of flavor, we're going to throw in a Russian movie just to like spice it yeah, up. Yeah, we're going to throw in a Tarkovsky <laughs> to kind of lighten the mood. Yeah, just a, just a really easy uh, treat. Yeah, just you know, a three-hour uh, <laughs> philosophical meditation. That's and all a- that's coming up to you right now. Andrei Tarkovsky's films lead us into an inner world, into a dream world very often, um, into the dream world of the characters as well as kind of the, the inner world of the director himself. After seeing Ivan's childhood, uh, Bergman was reputed to have said, it's been quoted often, that Tarkovsky was the greatest filmmaker because he could capture life as appearance and life as a dream. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. What did you make me watch this time, James? Oh, well, I figured, you know, something really light. <laughs> um, not, you know, I didn't want to go into something too too deep or philosophical. So figured I'd make you watch Stalker uh, by Tarkovsky. <laughs> it's a baby's first Tarkovsky. You know, it's a nice, simple introduction. Well, I kind of, for a while now, I've been thinking, you know, we're doing this podcast and... You know, you got the reviews side and everything, but for a director that's considered the great, greatest director, I mean, he's up there with like Bergman and mm-hmm. a few other auteurs. I've never seen any of his films. Me neither. And so it just seemed like, why haven't I seen any of this guy's movies? And I've seen clips from him and thought like, wow, they're gorgeous. Like, so I figured from what I read online, Stalker was supposed to be kind of a good starting point. Well, it's a hun- it's 160 minutes long, so it's almost three hours in length. I could see how that could be intimidating to get into a director who regularly reaches for movies that go over the two-hour mark. Yeah, and especially given his style of these really long takes, very slow like pans or zooming in, it just really puts you in this like meditative sort of trance and. The general plot of Stalker, and it is like a very bare bones science fiction. Like it's sci-fi without all the pretenses of what makes a sci-fi movie. It kind of breaks it down to its most fundamental thing. So the general idea of the movie is 
in this kind of post-apocalyptic or future world, there's an area called the zone that has a room that will fulfill all your unconscious desires, anything you could want. And so a stalker is someone that takes people there as kind of like a tour guide. And so the film centers around a stalker and his two companions, both only known by their, their names are just their profession. The, pro- the professor and the writer. And the writer. And the stalker. And the stalker. <laughs> and basically they just take this kind of slow journey to the the zone. And in between it has all this like kind of philosophical musings and just images that kind of like make you think but they doesn't have any real direct symbolism to anything it's all very kind of abstract and vague and surreal and and that i mean that's it really i mean there's not a whole lot of action per se it's a very trance inducing Mm -hmm. film i don't know about you but i had to break it up into two separate viewings i I did not watch it all the way through one time. No, I watched it after seeing two films in the theater for French Film Fest. I went home and then watched this third movie, which is like a three-hour experience. Um, I watched it all in one go, but I had to lock my cell phone in a box across the room so I couldn't like drift away from it. Right. Like, uh, it's a dense, sort of disorienting movie. So it'd be easy to sort of drift away from it. And like you said, maybe you have to break it up into two segments. But um, I, I did I did manage to see it all in one go. So what did you think about it? I did not expect going in that it would be a sci-fi picture. That's not something I knew about it. The philosophical sort of existential terror of it is really interesting to me. And something that really struck me was that it's basically like a mirror of The Wizard of Oz. Like yeah. You have this one guide who takes these uh, two other people to this land and they're seeking something to fulfill something to fulfill them. So that's, that's kind of a wizard of Oz aspect before they get to the zone. The film is in black and white. And once they get to the zone, it's in color, which is very wizard of Oz. Yeah. The, the beginning when they're outside the zone, it's shot in these really monochrome, like sepia. It looks like uh, the found object kind of vibe of like eraser head or pie uh, a page of madness almost mm-hmm. like it's like really um intensely contrast heavy like black and white uh gritty dirty stuff too like yeah. uh, everything's just wet and industrial looking like tetsuo is another good like reference point for that but then yeah once you get into the zone it's this lush all this grass and overgrown vines and trees and yeah, it's like a contrast between um, industrial wasteland, and then when you get there, it's pure nature. And nature has started to reclaim aspects of modernity. Like, there are tanks and guns and casts off from war left in the zone, but the zone is overgrowing those with weeds and sort of, like, reassembling it into the landscape, which is a really interesting concept. And, uh, yeah, and they, um, the stalker also talks about how the zone is, like, alive, mm-hmm. and it it changes form and it's conscious. So they're basically trying to navigate this unknowable world. Like it's not predictable in any way. I mean, they try to find these like traps 
you know, but he's just like throwing a nut on a string, whatever that like, whatever that works. There's no clear path to this like fulfillment. You have to like go the long way and you have to like take detours that don't make any sense. You have to follow the wills of the landscape and respect the landscape. You can't go into there with like a malicious intent because it will stop you from reaching this room and of this fulfillment. Yeah. Um, and at, at one point the professor actually goes back to get his knapsack, but then he ends up ahead of them. And so there's all this like playing around with location. It's not like grounded in reality. Yeah. Really. There's, there's an aspect of that too, where you're like the the f- philosophy of having your deepest wish fulfilled when you get to this room uh, sort of matches the shifting landscape of the zone because basically what the stalker's saying is like the truth of what you want is like very elusive and as soon as you give voice to it it's not true anymore not right so even knowing what desire you're looking to be fulfilled and being able to put that into words is like an impossible thing. Like as soon as you voice what you want, it's not exactly what you want anymore. Right. Uh, there's there's sort of like this um, elusiveness of truth and desire. And I the underlying it, philosophy that is matched in the way the landscape is always shifting and uh, never a solid thing that you can even map out. I think that elusiveness of truth is definitely one of the central themes of the film. Like the way he talks about, you know, it doesn't fulfill your conscious desire, the thing you think you want. It fulfills the unconscious, the thing you have no idea that you truly want. And the fact that once they get there, they don't actually want to go into the room because those unconscious desires are really kind of scary and like unknowable. And mm-hmm. once it's known, we don't really, it is elusive, like what people think will make them happy or what will give their life meaning isn't really knowable in any true sense. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's like reflected throughout the whole movie with like, I think with a lot of other films, you would look at things like, you know, the dog or guns or there's some religious imagery. And you Mm. would look at that as like having a concrete symbolism, but I don't think it does in this movie. It kind of throws out these images that make you feel something on an emotional level, but it doesn't really give you that, concrete this represents this and that is kind of like what i really loved about it was that it's openly opposed to absolutes right like uh before they get to the zone the the reason the writer wants to go he says like the world is boring because it is a concrete place like there's no room for ufos or the bermuda triangle being true because we have all these like cast iron laws Mm -hmm. and what the zone offers is for that to be open like the, it opens the world to possibility again to like an unknowable thing. Like you're saying, like there is no concrete. This means this. Like everything's just very open and always shifting. There, there's there's something really interesting about that idea. I mean, I think it floats around a lot of interesting ideas, but it never quite like. And I think this is like the genius of the film is it never quite like tells you explicitly this is what the zone represents Mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of like a hard thing to pull off and does make for a pretty disorienting viewing experience because you're as a human being that you're trying to piece this together like oh this represents this Mm -hmm. and like this is but it's never there and that's that elusiveness is what the movie is about yeah it kind of reminded me of zolowski's possession especially the bathtub scene at the end where they're basically in the bathtub and you hear these like sounds of war just overwhelming the soundtrack mm-hmm. um, and almost like shaking the room. 
and it doesn't really mean anything specific. It's almost like this, like, just existential terror. Right. Uh, and I almost feel like I'm missing some sort of, like, cultural context that would make that make sense to me. But as, like, as an American audience watching it, um, it's more about, like, a feeling and, like, a um But I, But I don't think terror. that's just an American audience. Like, I read a couple essays about it, and I, I think even, like, from a Russian perspective... It does like it doesn't matter if you're Russian or American watching the film because that central idea rings true for both. Like I don't know if there's actually any political or religious context. Like I think you could draw those um, lines if you wanted to, but you can kind of project onto this movie whatever you want. Well, there is a lot of imagery of tanks and guns, guns and yeah. nuclear devices and police guarding the borders to the zone. There is something going on with that aspect of the film. It's definitely part of the philosophy of the zone. But I, it, like you're saying, it might just be like a contrast between the zone's like open possibility of nature versus like the hard, cold, like destructiveness right. of our industrial lives in like modern times. Right, because the entrance to the zone when they get on the train or whatever, it's blocked by like government forces. Mm-hmm. And that's like the last, that's like your entry point into the zone. So once you can get past these like strict societal structures of like politics and war and all that, then you can reach some like something deeper and more true. And they're kind of punished for trying to bring that into the zone too. Like the scientist is trying to measure and study Mm -hmm. what is happening there. Like he has all these instruments where he's just trying to like quantify what is happening in the place. Yeah. And it's just not possible. Like his his various instruments and his backpack full of supplies sort of mean nothing once he crosses that border. And it does also, they explicitly raise the question, like, maybe this is all like a dream. Like, maybe this isn't even like real, which is why I find that towards uh, the very end, when they get back to the stalker's daughter, Mm -hmm. when it's clear that she has telekinetic powers... So there does seem to be some magic in the real, back in the real world, Mm -hmm. but what that means, that's so kind of open-ended. Yeah. I kind of like that Lost City of Z. Uh, There's a movie out right now under that title. Uh, The idea of that film is this guy keeps going to the Amazon and like searching for some like grand truth and he keeps coming back home and his like family's like wasting away and like moving on without him and just getting older while he's like searching for something else. There's an aspect of this film as well where the stalker keeps going into the zone helping other people achieve their like inner desires or getting close to the threshold of that um, and then coming back home and his wife and daughter is sort of like rotting in, in the industrial space without him. And they touch on the fact that his daughter was basically punished in some way for him going to the zone. Mm-hmm. The reason stalkers know how to navigate the space is because they're from there. Uh, there was a city there before either a meteorite or an alien presence or something we don't understand changed the terrain. So he has like a um, inherent connection to the zone, which may be why his daughter has like a magical ability. Or, right. Like, it may be why he can feel the terrain telling him things that other people don't know. But like you're saying, that's just as abstract and and non-concrete as anything else in the film. And he also has never gone into the room himself. Mm -hmm. He only takes people like right outside of the room, but he'll never actually go in. I mean, I kind of like, like you were talking about how they say the zone, it could be a meteorite or aliens or whatever. Apparently it was, this was based on a 
on a book. Okay. That is way more heavy on the kind of standard sci-fi. Like they make it very clear that it's aliens. Oh, really? Basically, but he kind of strips all that away and kind of leaves you with the very just fundamental what every sci-fi movie is always trying to get at like something about the human experience so by cutting out like all the the standard sci-fi stuff it leaves you with like the essence of like sci-fi which is like human nature that's uh the same process glazer used when he made under the skin right the movie is like about this like alien invading force but he kind of strips all that like narrative away and it's just about scarlett johansson's like quest to like figure out what it means to exist on this planet it's kind of the same like essentialism kind of vibe i find that interesting i don't know if necessarily the entire three hours i was as engaged as i would want to be because it is a slow drift Mm -hmm. uh what i do find very exciting in this film and what makes me want to see more tarkovsky movies is the way he makes everyday objects foreign Right. Um, going back to that same quote about like there being no possibility in like the modern world because everything's concrete there's these slow camera pans across what looks like almost visual collage so there's all these objects underwater mm-hmm. and they're reflecting things from the surface of the water so you'll see stuff like tiles and tree branches and guns just under the surface of the shallow pool but it's so hard to like even know what you're looking at until it's almost off the until the camera's almost panned all the way past it. Mm-hmm. Like, he just abstracts these common objects that you should know by sight by distorting the distance, distorting the perspective, and layering them on top of each other. Um, it's a really interesting visual style that I imagine probably carries over into his other films. But I'm only saying that as someone who's seen this one, so... Yeah, I mean, visually it is stunning. I could see a lot of people citing this movie as being like the greatest film ever or something, but it, I think it kind of, I don't know, like has this feeling of the kind of movie that people that want to sound very smart, intellectual, and like intellectual would cite it as. And I've seen one other Tarkovsky uh, mirror, which I actually liked more. Oh, really? Than this one. Yeah. I, I do think it raises a lot of interesting questions, but it also is kind of a taxing on you as the viewer. It, it demands a lot. It demands your, like, utmost attention. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to be on board with it from the beginning. Just let it sweep you away. If you have this distance from the film and you're, like, checking your watch or something, you're going to not get swept up in it. And that is what I think, like, Tarkovsky does extremely well. If you're, like, on board and you're ready to, like, dive in, it can, like, bring you on this, like, kind of almost spiritual journey but i can i can hear my brain straying sometimes like they're traveling into the zone in the first place and i'm like looking at a character's ear and i'm like ears look weird or like there's a wild dog that runs throughout i'm like i wonder if that dog was just there or like you know like that kind of like my Mm. mind just kind of strayed sometimes it is it it is a concentrated effort like you have to like yeah but i think that's on top of yourself but i think that straying is why he adds those things in there like the dog or you know the guns or whatever that's kind of the power of filmmaking too is like just putting these images out there and not explicitly telling you what they mean but it conjures up all these emotions and thoughts in your head and the way he kind of stretches time it gives you room to really like think mm-hmm. about all this stuff like that that is sort of why it it works 
so well for being so long. Okay, it is, like, dense and disorienting, and I don't think that one viewing is enough to talk about it with any authority. No. Like, I feel like if we saw it two or three more times, we might have other things to say about it. The version we watched was this, like, kind of so-so Kino DVD release, which is, right. like, fine, but it's it's a little gritty. It's not particularly amazing. Um, it just got picked up for a Criterion release. That's uh, very exciting. So they're doing a nice restoration of it. Um, Janus Films is actually doing a theatrical run as well. And I would go see this in the theater because, like I said, like you can't check your phone when you're in a movie theater. Like, I do think like it needs even more attention than I gave it uh, that one viewing experience. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I'm a little like, <sighs> I know you're going back to saying like, uh, there's like an intellectual air to like calling this like one of the greatest films of all time. Mm-hmm. I do think he was reaching for that kind of like. He was. I think he was always reaching for that. But there's a part of that that really turns me off too. Like watching these characters go through these like war-ridden like wastelands and trudging through this like still water and these like obviously like dangerous spaces was making me concerned for the camera crew and like the the actors' health. And it turns out that a lot of these people who worked in this film actually did die of cancer by going through these, like, desolated wastelands. Um, And I don't think that a movie is ever worth that. And I'm saying that as someone who, like, spends all their time watching and enjoying film, I just don't think that reaching beyond the limitations of art is worth killing a bunch of people I mean, but that also reminds me of, like, Werner Herzog, you know, and was it Fritz Carlo, where they literally pulled a ship like, right over a hill and he, they actually did it like it wasn't you know special effects and it, it's the same thing is like is your life worth art i mean i would definitively say no but that's just me <laughs> but I, I think you know that's why people love directors like tarkovsky or herzog or bergman because they respected and loved film so much and saw it as the pinnacle of like art that they thought it was worth dying Mm -hmm. over and you definitely get the sense watching their movies and tarkovsky like specifically that he is just trying to make a statement about some of the deepest things about human existence like he's shooting for the moon here and trying to make a deep important film and that i do think could turn off a casual yeah there's a lot of hubris to that to saying like my art is worth several lives. Like, I don't think that is true. At the end of the day, these things are just moving lights that you find pretty and entertaining. Like, it's not worth losing human lives over. Um, I think I think even he died of cancer, maybe even in relation to them filming this movie. And he did leave behind, like, a legacy of, like you're saying, people list him up there as, like, one of the greatest visual artists of all time. Um, and I do think the movie has moments like that where I'm like, oh, wow, this is really impressive visual but, stuff. Mm-hmm. But I just don't necessarily think that's an admirable quality in a director. Like, you have to like take care of the people who are working to serve your right. vision a little better than that. Um, I think that's a fair... And that sours criticism. my like viewing of the film a little bit, even though that's extra textual. Yeah. But I do want to see it again. I do think it's worth giving multiple viewings to and i don't think that we are 100 percent prepared to like talk about this after a single viewing you know like i mean i and i think more viewings the deeper you'll get into but i again i don't think you'll ever hit on the specific like root point of the film because the whole point is that it's elusive right i agree with that and so that will just make this perpetual like searching for meaning which 
again, is kind of what the human experience is about. And I think we'll understand it more the more Tarkovsky movies we look into. And sort of understanding this work as like a collection, I think, might make me appreciate Stalker a little more. I think this was a good starting point for our Tarkovsky journey. Yeah. This is the city, Paris, France. It is just like any other big city. London, New York, Tokyo, except for two little things. In Paris, people eat better. And in Paris, people make love, well, perhaps not better, but certainly more often. And now it's time for our feature conversation. Uh, This week we're going to be talking about New Orleans French Film Fest, which took place over the course of a week, all at a single venue, which would be the Britannia Theater uptown. Uh, It's New Orleans' oldest theater. It's Louisiana's oldest single-screen theater. I went to their 100-year anniversary. must have been three years ago. They screened uh, Cinema Paradiso for free. It's it's like a local institution, pretty much. Oh, yeah. So it was nice to go over there and watch all of these, like like, like we said in the intro, artsy-fartsy, kind of like sophisticated French films in this, like, old theatrical setting. It was really nice to do that. It was nice, yeah. Uh, The first film I saw at the festival, though, was Love in the Afternoon from 1957. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not an artsy-fartsy movie. (laughs) It's a Billy Wilder comedy. Uh, The director who did The Apartment and Some Like It Hot, which are pretty well-respected comedies. Oh, yeah, I I like both of those. Yeah, me me too. This one stars Audrey Hepburn and Gary Cooper, who, you know, respected personalities. Yeah. The comedy itself is about how French people fuck too much. The entire joke at the center of the movie is about how in France people, like, fuck out of wedlock too often. Not as well as Americans is one of the central jokes. <laughs> and it just seems like this, like, kind of strangely insulting comedy to, like, sort of kick off the festival with. It was the second movie they played overall at French Film Fest. Insulting to Americans or insulting to the French people? It's insulting to French people, for sure. Yeah, it seems like kind of uh, playing into a, a certain stereotype. Yeah, totally. French people, yeah. Um, yeah, the opening scene um, is a narrator just showing different people making out in all kinds of venues across France. Like, oh, they're fucking over here. Watch them fuck over there. And then they go to the muse- museum and they're like, even the statues are fucking. And it shows like these like statues making out <laughs> at the Louvre. It's really over the top. Uh, the plot of the movie is that Audrey Hepburn is a teenager who's a virgin and falls in love with an American man who happens to be vacationing in France. And he is a uh, sort of notorious like tabloid kind of male bimbo. He's like a rich man who has like sex with all kinds of people and like never settles down. And... She finds herself enraptured with him, but to not make herself vulnerable to him, she pretends that she's also, like, experienced in the same way. So the tagline of the movie is, an oh-so-very-shy young girl, but she lists 20 men in her past. <laughs> and the, the comedy mm. is, like, the two of them going back and forth, trying to make each other jealous with their sexual exploits. Uh, and she just, like, tells him things like, oh, I had sex with an entire, uh, like, biking brigade like those like cross country biking uh outfits like this, oh i had sex with all of them um and, and this came out in 1957 yeah it's it's kind of strange how they imply all of this like extramarital fucking 
but they never say that they're having sex. Like, she goes, the title Love in the Afternoon is because she does these afternoon visits to his hotel room where they draw the lampshades so no one can see inside the room mm-hmm. and they just dance and kind of like make out in the uh, in the parlor and then it like fades to black. So you don't actually see them in bed together at any point, but it's, it's like implied. heavily implied that this is all just like raunchy sex talk. Uh, the sex politics of it are really difficult to get over at this point. The idea of how he gets away with all this like sleeping around, but the way that she does the same thing makes her like a lesser person in the in the societal context and it informs so much of the humor that mm-hmm. it's like difficult to get over it it's not very funny in any way like it's just kind of like an awkward comedy uh the best aspect of it is just how gorgeous audrey hepburn was at the time like there's all these like close-up shots of just her face uh and her like beautiful outfits mm-hmm. like, she wears like these really nice like mid-calf length dresses and walks around france and that's like the best aspect of the film uh, the comedy itself is, like I said, just really insulting and dated. I mean, I wonder, like, that's interesting that it was probably, I guess, sort of cutting edge maybe for the time. Yeah. You know, but watching it now, you know, 60 years later, it just like, it doesn't have that same social context yeah. anymore. And it, I find that's what happens with a lot of comedies from, you know, 40, 50 years ago. They just don't connect in a way because... We're just, like, at a different stage. It's strange, though, because, like, The Apartment and Some Like It Hot have the same kind of, like, transgressive sexual energy to them, uh, but they aged better. But they're better. timeless. Yeah, they aged better, for sure. This one, I would say, is, like, more forgotten in, in like, the Billy Wilder catalog, but probably for a good reason. Like, it's just not as good. It's not as well-written. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it came right before those two pieces. So maybe he was, like kind of perfecting his formula before he, yeah. before he got there. Um, the next movie I saw was that same day, Umbrellas of Cherbourg from 1964. It's a uh, musical from Jacques Demy. Stars a very young Catherine Deneuve as a shop girl in an umbrella shop that her mother owns in a small city in France called Cherbourg. A lot of people cite this as inspiration for La La Land, um, which oh, you can really? totally I, see. Yeah, I, t- I kind of thought that while I was watching it, too. Because it's about... These sort of like star-crossed young lovers whose lives divert, even though they're into each other, they uh, can't be together because of like life circumstances. And the movie has like sort of a tinge to sadness to it because of that misconnection. In this case, the shop girl falls in love with a man who is drafted to go to fight in the war in Algeria, mm-hmm. uh, and he leaves for two years to do the service. And when he comes back, things have changed. Uh, what did you think of this movie? Because you got to see this one. Yeah, I I loved it. I thought it kind of reminded me in some ways of like a Douglas Sirk sort of melodrama. Mm-hmm. It was definitely very melodramatic, but also like very sentimental and sweet. And ultimately like a very sad film. It's weird too, because I'm not a huge fan of musicals, really. But this style of musical, where it's more like an opera, I guess, where they're just kind of sing talking yeah there's no um spoken dialogue in the film every line is sung yeah which is interesting which i don't know like brought me more into the story like you know there weren't any big dance numbers or anything the movie just felt sort of light and airy and it also was was beautiful as well like just the music and the way it was shot and then ultimately like it's very very kind of sad like that idea of two people that are really in love with each other but it just doesn't quite work out yeah i feel like if i had seen this when i was 17 or 18 i would have been even more into it because of that like long distance romance 
mm-hmm. kind of tragedy to it. Like, that's something that would have resonated to me if I was, like, the age of the two characters in the film who have to, like, keep up their relationship, even though he has to leave the city. Watching it now, you can kind of see where her mother's coming from, where she's trying to encourage her daughter to move on and not... She's basically saying, like, in time, you'll, you won't care as much about this man. By the time he comes back, he won't even be the same person. Which it, is true. Yeah. And you should move on and, like, there's other men you can fall in love with. Like, time sort of, like, heals those, uh, those like, passions and those depression. Well, and, and also, like, they both change, you know, before the war. They're kind of, you know, young and naive and uh, idealistic. And then post-war, he comes back and he's, like, drinking heavily and mm-hmm. he's sleeping with prostitutes. And she sort of, like like grows up and decides to move on to a more stable life as well. So there's definitely that happening too. like that two year stretch of the war definitely changes both of them, you know, and helps them like mature. Yeah. I think there's something to say about how she does move on and her life gets better quickly that way. When he comes back to town, you get to see him go to these old places and try to relive memories. Like, he goes to the umbrella shop and it's closed. Yeah. He'll go to a bar that used to be a fun night of dancing and now it's just, like, sad day drinking. Um, There's, like, this idea at the center of this about how you can't go back to something in the past, like how you can't relive a memory, where you just watch him sort of uh, drift through his old life and not find any satisfaction. But I mean, I think anyone that grew up in a town and then they leave to go to college or whatever, and then they come back, Mm -hmm. there's always that feeling of just like something's not quite the same. And I mean, the movie definitely like encapsulates that really well. I don't even watching it now. Like I agree with what you're saying. Like I would have, probably been even more into it as like a 17 year old but it was just very like sentimental and at the end where they kind of meet back up for the last time mm-hmm. it's like a bittersweet kind very of bittersweet and like i i really i don't know i really connected with both both the characters and their like situation i i thought it was great and the music was just pleasant it's a little awkward honestly the music because for the first 10 minutes you're watching them only sing dialogue and there's no like refrain or like chorus to it. There's no like big song and dance number like no. you're saying. It, it definitely has a nostalgia for old Hollywood musicals and it's definitely reliving that memory kind of like the way he's roaming the old city. Mm-hmm. But it's pushing it into this new kind of like jazzy atonal uh, 60s vibe. Like it's bringing the nostalgia for the past into a new sort of like swanky 60s lounge jazz Right. aspect to it where it almost feels like improv a little bit the way that they're they're speaking the dialogue and i do find that a little awkward it took me about maybe 10 minutes to get on the movie's rhythm you know i couldn't tell you a song from from the movie like i can't sing back to you a couple bars from umbrellas of sherboard because it's not that kind of musical i think a lot of it too like has to do with the french language as well like if this would have been an english film it would have felt even more Mm-hmm. We were like, as I was reading the subtitles, I was trying to imagine like an American actor singing this in English. I don't know, like something about the French language. It just has this natural romanticism. It has more room for rhyming for sure. I right. Think. That, yeah. that as well. So in a way, like this movie felt very, and this is kind of silly to say, but it did feel very French in, yeah. that, in that way. Totally. Uh, what, what I think struck me the most though like once i did get in the rhythm of the film is just how tightly controlled like the imagery is 
It's got kind of like almost a Wes Anderson like meticulousness to it. Uh, these were like really bright colors, just like pinks and blues. Yeah, and a yellows. lot of pastels going on. Uh, some of the most gorgeous wallpaper patterns I've ever seen in my life, which is kind of like a silly thing to notice in a film, but it's like in your face in this. Also, everyone, every character was beautiful yeah, in this. and just smartly dressed, and um, that might be part of, like, the nostalgia for the past, you know? Um, I could see some people finding this a little twee. Did you see that musical a couple of years ago from the guy who basically is Belle and Sebastian, Stuart Murdoch? He did this music called uh, God Help the Girl. Mm-mm, uh, no. It feels like what I assume some people would be annoyed by in this movie, that, like, twee preciousness just amped up to like a thousand uh, <laughs> yeah but the, i mean when this came out like the mid 60s mm-hmm. i don't know it, it feels like a more sentimental time like right. if someone tried to be that overly sentimental nowadays like i don't know it feels like we're a little more cynical that, now that earnestness it. would get kind of like eaten by the wolves yeah it just but for that time period like i think it was totally sincere yeah you know and it's kind of funny to like think about like oh how quaint is it that they even have like an umbrella shop in this in this era but I was on Magazine Street Bella Umbrella there's a there's an umbrella boutique on there Magazine is. Street uptown like it, it's not that this stuff doesn't still exist but like you're saying there's kind of like a there's kind of like a false earnestness and like a vulnerability to that in the modern era yeah um, and even the movie sets itself back almost ten years to a time in the fifties. So it already gives itself that air of nost- that air of nostalgia to like sort of soften its um its earnestness a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I thought and that was interesting too that you know it came out in like 1964 but it's placed in the 50s. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's such a short time period to go back. Yeah. But it's totally like the t- change between the 50s and the 60s was like monumental. So it definitely that earnestness and sincerity is more of a, like, 50s attitude than, I think, what we got to in the 60s, yeah. so... Would you recommend this for people who are, like, sort of adverse to musicals? Yeah, I... Because, I mean, just from my taste, not a huge musical fan, and I I loved it. Like, mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed it, because just from, like, how tightly... Like you were saying, how tightly constructed it was. Yeah. And, like, just beautifully shot, and the story moves along at a very nice pace and like just a very well done some some of the camera movie. movement was really just impressive there's this one scene where the two of them are sort of saying goodbye and they're sad and like holding each other and then they just sort of start drifting down the street on a dolly and no like mention is made of it or anything they're just kind of swept up in the rhythm where they just glide and so they start walking on the, on the train no that's that, a different because i like that but it was similar to what you're saying we're like they say goodbye and he leaves on the train mm-hmm. and there's all this like movement going on. The train's moving towards the camera. The camera's slowly moving forward while it's on the train and she is staying in one spot. So right. there's all this like movement going on. It's a really fantastic shot. Yeah. There's this other like kind of energy to how she stays still in the shop as well. Uh, kind of like how she's like st- still at the train station. Um, so her and her mother are having these arguments about whether or not she should move on from this man who's been drafted. Uh, and outside the window, time passes to the f- point where like sometimes it's like snowing really hard or sometimes it's carnival season and people are just throwing confetti and like partying mm-hmm. their like asses off <laughs> outside the window. And the shop remains still and sort of unchanged. Like it's kind of almost rotting and like going out of business slowly which it, yeah and there's there's something really interesting about the way it's constructed for sure i feel like i do need to see it a couple more times 
uh, because it is like such a meticulously like crafted work. Mm-hmm. Um, and this version they aired at the festival is the recent like digital restoration of it, which really makes the colors pop, and it's just a really like beautiful thing to just behold. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that might be out on Criterion soon or now, cool. so that may be really cool to like give give it another watch on like Blu-ray or something. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, that same afternoon, I watched My Life as a Zucchini, which is a stop motion animation feature. It was actually nominated for an Oscar for best animated feature this past season, but it didn't actually meet reach American theaters until this year. It's about a young child who suddenly finds himself in an orphanage in France and all the people he meets at the orphanage, like all the children have these sort of like tragic pasts to them. Like, I mean, obviously right. they're all orphans, they're orphan. but you know, there's like physical abuse and like drug abuse and some, some of their parents are like deported immigrants and stuff like that. But the movie balances the pain of that past with uh, just these moments of levity mm-hmm. and the the idea that there's no real villains in the story. Like, the people who run the orphanage aren't really, like, cruel. There's a kind of bully character who's just an older kid. And the more you get to know him, the more you realize, oh, he's just, like, protective of the... Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't want new children coming in and, like, beating up kids he's already caring for and really the only like villain in the movie is just the fact that life kind of sucks sometimes and like (laughs) people fall through the cracks uh so as far as like stop motion animation movies goes it's more like mary and max than anything else i've ever Mm -hmm. seen where it's got a lot of like deep almost vicious moments of like guttural pain like i was crying through probably 90 percent of this movie but then there's also like jokes about sex and coming of age moments where like the kids like hold hands for the first time or like find their first crush uh so it's like a really well balanced film it it makes you laugh but most of the time you're just like i feel so bad for all these kids do you think the the fact that it's animated helps with easing some of that that like pain because it it seems like kind of a dark subject matter for an animated or stop motion kind of yeah there's like kind of a preciousness to stop motion yeah like uh it's this this movie in particular i I know i cited mary and max but that claymation style is black and white this one's very colorful like it looks like it was colored by crayons almost like almost Mm. like play-doh play-doh colors like that pure reds and blues like primary colors to it and this movie has like cute little things to it like there's like a carnival ride uh like those like haunted house carnival rides um or the bully has a metal like a heavy metal poster over his bed and it just says metal and has a ram on it (laughs) um so there's like kind of a preciousness to it in that aspect and I feel like that actually makes you more vulnerable to being emotionally raw in some ways. Like, mm. it brings you back to being a kid, and you feel kind of vulnerable. And, I don't know, there's just, like, when, when a child says something like, there's nobody left to love us, and it's, like, Ugh. a true fact. Or there's a scene where they're at a ski lodge, and they see a uh, more well-off kid who's, like, actually with a family, like a traditional family, and they all just stare. And the movie, like, pauses on that moment and watches them stare with longing at, like, a traditional family unit. So there's a lot of, like, stuff that it chooses to linger on, but I'm making it sound way more of, like, a sap fest a than it actually than it is. Really is. Uh, it, it actually really is, like, an endearing story, and I would, I would highly recommend checking it out. Uh, it's called My Life is a Zucchini, and it's written by this woman who directed Girlhood a couple of years ago, which is like a French movie I really enjoyed. And I don't know, I would, I would list this up there with like the best 2017 domestic releases I've seen so far. It, it, it's pretty high up for me. A, a, among all the like new films at the festival, like excluding like the Jacques Demy musicals, like this was really high up for me. Oh, awesome. I'll definitely have to check that out. 
the next morning was the next Demi musical, though. The Young Girls of Rochefer, which is sort of a spiritual sequel to Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Like, it's got Catherine Deneuve living in a small French town, uh, longing to for, like, a more romantic life than she has. Yeah, it does have that, like, pastel color palette it's got the same look to it um her sister is actually her like roommate in the movie like her real life sister they play sisters in the movie the difference between this one and umbrellas is that instead of pushing the nostalgia for like old hollywood musicals into that new jazzy form this one just replicates what an old hollywood musical sounds like like there are big dance numbers in this movie there is spoken dialogue uh, the songs are super memorable. Like, for the rest of the festival, I was just kind of singing lines to myself from Young Girls of Rochefort, even though I don't even speak French. Like, I just knew the, the tune to it. it. It seemed like more like a, like you said, traditional musical in the sense of like a West Side story mm-hmm. or something. This one even had Gene Kelly in it. I, I actually enjoyed this one more than... Sheerborg. It almost felt like the difference between listening to pop music versus listening to jazz music. Like there's like a, a really infectious, like easy to latch onto camp and just sense of fun to the film. But it still has that same tightly controlled visual style to it. Uh, like you said, the colors are just as intense. The camera movement's even more impressive in some ways. Like one of the first shots is this crane shot yeah. from outside of their dance studio that the two sisters run together. Mm-hmm. And it goes directly into the studio unbroken, which is something you usually see in like maybe a Hitchcock film, but really more recently, like CGI kind of stuff. Also, I thought you were going to say that one of the very first shots where they're like on a platform, like on a crane. Mm-hmm. Technically, that's like very impressive to to pull off. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know, to go to like the difference, that's more like what I'm talking about, like a standard musical where the songs are actually like memorable and you can hum them and but... To go back to the umbrellas of Cherbourg, like that—that's what I liked about that one was that there it wasn't that like poppy sort of thing. It was just sort of talking over the song, but in a sing-songy sort of way. And I remember when you had texted me about it, saying like "Umbrellas" was a James film and this is a, a Brandon film. Yeah, and I definitely see what you're what you're saying there. Even even plot-wise, like "Umbrellas" is a drama about like unrequited romance where it's tragic that these things don't come together. In Young Girls of Rochefort, it's a screwball comedy where the audience sees all these couples that pretty much have to get together by the end of the movie to make it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's all these like misconnections or like people just missing each other and all these like misunderstandings where people don't know who it is they're looking for even though they've already met them. And you watch it all come together in like the end in like this sort of satisfying like classic screwball structure where that is like a major difference like oh yeah umbrella says that like very tragic sort of i don't know it doesn't wrap things up in such a way it's, it's more of an art film as opposed to like a crowd pleaser which i feel like rochefer is more of a crowd pleaser but i'm saying all this like it's like white fluff there's so much weird shit in this movie mm. captain Deneuve, one of her bows that's trying to like get her to run away with him is this super serious artist who his painting style as he hangs these bags of paint over a canvas and shoots them with a pistol uh (laughs) there's this subplot that doesn't even come up until like late in the second act where there's a mysterious killer going around slashing up girls chopping up their body parts and putting them in wicker baskets around the city there's these sort of like offhand flippant references to dressing like a whore 
that the girls just sort of like joke about and it's like kind of uncommented upon like there is sort of like this dark sense of humor under the the sugary surface which is the kind of stuff i really gravitate towards mm-hmm. um it, it is like a campy over-the-top farce but i really enjoyed it a lot like i think this was my favorite movie i saw overall oh um, really okay. yeah it's really good I think that it's worth watching both of them to get a sense of what Demi was doing um, with the old Hollywood format. But I think there's something valuable about actually doing the format in a traditional sense instead of like pushing it to a new place. He's actually like almost like a cover song. Like he's he's actually like copying what's come before. But there's something really new and exciting under the surface of that. Yeah, it's like the same formula but a different product, I guess. Yeah, that night. I watched what might have been my least favorite movie oh, at the man. festival. Um, this is The Death of Louis XIV. This had a 45-minute lecture before the movie started about the I didn't, context. I didn't catch any any lecture. May, that probably would have made me like it a lot less. Actually, the lecture was my favorite part of the movie. Really? Why? Yeah. What, it, what, was, what was said during this lecture? Okay, so the movie stars Jean-Pierre Léaud who is the young kid from 400 Blows, Mm -hmm. who also did probably like three other movies that Truffaut directed and was in a bunch of other like French New Wave kind of movies. And the lecture was about how he basically was a mascot for the French New Wave as a movement Mm -hmm. and put this movie in the context as like watching that mascot as an old man and dying. Dying, yeah. So it's like completing the cycle. Um, And they, they had this quote, from uh, Laod on the projector that was like, the line has been crossed. I went all the way. I'm not acting in that film. I am someone who is waiting for the meeting with death. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was a really interesting concept to like watch this like mascot of the French New Wave die. And he's playing Louis XIV on his deathbed. And the whole idea of the movie is just waiting for death, like he says in that quote. To the point where there's a clock ticking on the soundtrack and that's most of the score is just like the metronome of waiting for time to tick off until this man dies. It's really slow. It's so slow. like Really pretentious. The frustrating thing about it to me is it could have been so good. Like it's so close to being this dark comedy. Yeah. About like the folly of like learned university men. I mean, that's what I liked the most about it was the morbid sense of humor watching this opulent king and the people around him just trying to like take care of him but he's like a lost cause and you just slowly see his leg that is infected with gangrene to slowly like get black and i actually think that the pace of the film sort of works with the subject matter like in the way that we're sort of like watching it and it feels very glacial and like when is this gonna gonna end basically but that's I what I feel like Louis the Fourteenth is feeling like as he's dying. Like mm. oh, when is this gonna be over? And all the people around him too, just waiting. Like all right, like <laughs> is he gonna? He could go at any minute. Like, and that's kind of what death I think is like. And I think that yeah, as a viewer watching it, like it feels boring. But I don't think that that was like without intent. Like I think the slow pace of the film was very very intentional, and I kind of like respect it that it took that to its ultimate end. Yeah. But it doesn't make for a particularly entertaining film. And I wish that they, I agree with you. I wish they would have basically made it funnier, like really gone into the morbid sense of humor. Cause well, it's there. There's some funny stuff sprinkled. Well, the humor throughout. of it is that you have these doctors 
Okay, so you have, like, the royal doctors who basically are afraid to amputate his leg. Because you're basically, like, mutilating the king. The king, right. Uh, so if you're wrong about... I guess it was, like, a hunting accident where he hurt his leg. Something I should, probably should have read the Wikipedia. Um, they could have saved his life so easily. But instead, they think that they can, like, smart their way out of, like, amputating his leg and saving him from gangrene. And when they exhaust their facilities they bring in university doctors yeah and when they don't work out they bring in like pretty much this like snake oil yeah a charlatan that has its magic elixir made out of like bulls semen or something (laughs) and as you said the leg just slowly gets blacker and blacker (laughs) and is like obviously killing him and the humor in it is that anytime he shows some kind of encouraging sign, like if he manages to swallow a single bite of food, like they they applaud. Oh my god. So funny. And even after he dies, they pull out his organs, like in a moment of gore, and are poking his organs for like signs of inflammation and abnormality, like Mm -hmm. still trying to like smart their way out of the fact that he's already dead. It's so bizarre. Yeah, I mean... That's the funny thing, too, is, like, they're scientists, and I love how at the end they basically admit, like, oh, you know, we probably should have cut off his leg. (laughs) It's probably the thing to do. But as an audience, you're thinking that for the entire two-hour film. But there there is some humor in that. Yeah. I I think that that should have been the main thrust of, like, the film. I, I mean, it is pretty to look at there's a lot of like soft lit silver candles it's kind of like the witch or like the libertine that like digital photography of natural lighting yeah Uh, and also the way that he looks like with his giant wig he kind of looks like phil specter just um i mean there's something interesting in that clash of like opulence versus like the indignity of death the gro yeah grotesqueness He's got oh, this like thing. this like weird little egg body is like struggling to breathe under like all these like fancy fabrics. Yeah, and you just hear him like gurgling a lot. <laughs> and it's a really uncomfortable. I don't know. I I think I liked it more than you, but I don't think it's like great by any well, here's stretch. My, here's my main question, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm listening to you say that it's admirable in the way they'll form uh, matches like the reality the f- of like waiting for death. death. Yeah. Okay. What does this movie to just do to justify its medium? Like it's a feature length film where you could fit everything that happens into maybe a 20 minute short film. Honestly, you can get across the meta text and the humor of it in a series of photographs. Even like mm-hmm. there's really, I just don't see that much that makes me think this had to be a two hour feature length movie. But that's the whole thing. It would have been even better, in a sense, if it was four hours long. (laughs) Just, like, stretching it out adds to that effect of, like... Because death isn't quick. Right. It's really slow, and it, like, has to kind of work its way through you. And, I don't know, a series of photographs or, like, a 20-minute thing, it would cut that idea short. Like, by stretching it out to an almost, like, just, I don't know, like... It's absurd. It's absurd and it's painful, but that's like, that is death. So in that sense, like the slowness of it and just drawing it out, I think that's why it worked for me. I think it could have been a little more of everything it was. Like you're saying like, oh, more comedy or make it longer even. Like there's just something sort of middling about where it landed to be. Yeah. It's not a very memorable picture if you don't have that context. Like if you walked in and you had no idea that was Laode or who Laode is... Like, would you really give a shit about this movie? Is it that? Is it that good? No, I, <laughs> I, I think it's. I don't know if I would even like 
be able to recommend it right. necessarily. It's interesting. I'm not going to say it's not interesting. But late on a Sunday night after watching five other movies is like interminable. And there's... But interminable people. is a good word because it's uh, like, will it end? Is his life over yet? Oh, wait, he's still holding on. Another 20 minutes goes by. Is he dead yet? Oh, he's finally dead. Thank God. <laughs> like, I don't know. The absurdity of it was what was funny. And there was a strange context to me of watching this at a festival where the average age of the uh, festival goer was quite up there for me. Yeah, like, I wonder what they felt. I was, I was like surrounding by all these old people watching this old man die. You could hear people in the audience like snoring uh, yeah. during the film because it was like eight eight p.m. on a on a Sunday night, so it was, it was almost like ten when it was over. Yeah, they should have put that like I don't uh, know, early in the, the morning, earlier in the middle. Yeah. You don't save that film for the very end. <laughs> that was poor placement. But, I, I, yeah, I think I liked it a little bit more than you, but not so much to where I would say it's a great film that you have to see. Well, it's, I'm, I'm also saying that I liked it the least out of all the movies I saw at the festival, but I liked everything at least a little bit. So it's not like, oh, I hated it. It was right. just like a frustrating experience, probably intentionally so. Yes. But almost to the point of cruelty for, to me, where like the ticking clock in particular was just like, you're going to make <laughs> me listen to time tick away while, I, while I'm watching yeah, this. Yeah, like, that's, that's so the whole, ridiculous. That's the whole point. Right. But yeah. So on Monday night, I had a different kind of frustrating experience. I saw this movie. Um, this was actually a French-Canadian film, but it was in French and it had Marion Cotillard and Vincent Cassel, who were like probably the two most recognizable French actors right now outside like Isabelle Huppert. It's frustrating because I saw this movie, I really enjoyed it, and I was kind of high on it. And I went home to go read some things about it, and what I read on the internet after the fact made me feel like a total idiot. Like what? I had like completely misread the film, misinterpreted all of its themes, and like had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> uh, and it's such an alienating experience to watch something at the theater and not have anyone to talk to about it after the fact because it's not in wide release in america right now like it just debuted at con i think last year this is uh xavier dolan's it's only the end of the world it's an adaptation of a play from the 90s uh from an, a playwright who died of hiv aids complications i think the context people are pulling from that like history of the adaptation and the fact that in the movie uh, the main character is a playwright who's going home to visit his family to get something off of his chest. Uh, I feel like that's informing the way a lot of people read the film. I mean, I didn't have that when I watched the movie. I watched it cold. Uh, and I feel like I just read so much into it in this other direction that I like, completely threw myself well, what off. Was the, what was the other direction or your initial okay. impression? So I'm going to try to like justify myself a little bit here. <laughs> yeah, because so I, I, haven't, I haven't seen this one, so you'll have to give me a quick synopsis. So this guy flies home from like the big city to go visit his family in like, kind of a trashy part of like French uh, Canada. Um, he is building up the courage to tell them something. He has a phone call at one point where someone's encouraging him to like get it off his chest. Uh, and the the common interpretation of the movie, maybe even rightly so, is that all he's telling them is that he's going to die, and this is probably the last time that they'll see him. Like, he has this, like, ter this turnable illness. Mm -hmm. The way that he communicates this language, Xavier Dolan, in the film, is through eye contact. These really intense, like, looks that the characters give each other with, like, this, like, swelling music. Or um, sometimes an image will trigger a memory and it'll go back into these like music video kind of like memories into the past where there's like this really swelling pop music and like all these idyllic, almost malic kind of images 
of road trips or like uh, gay sex. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that sort of like vague communication of the main anxiety in the film leaves it open for interpretation, at least the way I was watching it. What I thought he was communicating was that he had been abused as a kid, I believe by his brother, who is played by Vincent Cassell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Vincent Cassell is a loud, boisterous personality in this film. Like, think Ben Kingsley in Sexy Beast. Mm-hmm. Just that, like, commanding every room he walks into. Or, like, uh, Denzel Washington in Fences is another example. Yeah. Where, like, there's, like, this air of, like, if you say the wrong thing, he's, like, going to throw a punch at some point. Like, there's, like, a violence to just his presence in the room and the way he shuts everyone down and, like, demands all the attention all the time. And his wife is played by Marion Cotillard. She is, like, quiet as a mouse and kind of, like, walking on, like, tiptoes. And the way that she exchanges glass glances with uh, the main character who's, who's building up to this confession that never comes, you think, or I thought, that they were sort of, like, knowingly acknowledging that they had both suffered under the hand of the same abuser. Yeah, she had... She knows what he had went through, right? basically. Uh, and I thought it was so clear to me, like, what characters in the film knew about that abuse, what characters didn't, and, like, the reasons that they were acting the ways they were. Like, Vince Cassell's pretty much trying to get him to leave the house as soon as possible, like, driving back to the airport. He's like, what are you even doing here? You haven't seen the family in years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that that open for interpretation, like, communication through physical language and, like, sort of like these like dream sequences almost completely threw me off and i really feel like an idiot now i don't know if i don't know if my reading of the film is valid at all like even if abuse was part of the thematic structure of it um and everything i've read about it tells me i'm dead wrong on it so i don't even know if i can recommend this film i really enjoyed because it it just seems like i saw like almost like there's a different version of the movie playing in my head than everyone else has seen yeah i mean that brings up an interesting point though like knowing i guess the context of the the director and like his story or mm-hmm. or whatever like it it does i guess change the meaning of the film but does it really make your interpretation any less valid if i mean you paid attention to the whole thing and you've created your own meaning to the film that i don't know it sounds like you have your own evidence and reasons to believe what you did and now you know the like i guess true context but it sounds like a perfectly valid interpretation especially if he leaves it open like that yeah there's like just like moments where it'll just play a grime song on the soundtrack and you just watch like imagery from the past with no real explanation for what you're watching you just have to sort of infer uh what those images means to you and i think the movie has like an interesting use of pop music in that way but like the biggest pieces written on the film like there's one from variety from last year i can't remember the name of the critic off the top of my head but uh the headline is like the most disappointing film in con and uh his whole point in the article is that like the movie sort of like softened and removed the sort of like aids context from the play but if you walk into it without knowing that history of it it, it's completely different experience Um, and that's what i'm saying like it seems like he left that out intentionally as to basically you can inject your own meaning into it instead of just spelling out like this character has aids and this is what he wants to tell his family like it can be anything any dark dark secret or any past trauma or it can just represent anything yeah play like uh play like stage play dialogue has that sort of like openness to it right there's like sort of like an existential terror to like stage writing 
like the way dialogue means more than just the words you're saying. You, you know what I'm saying? There's like yeah, an artificiality I mean, to it that, that leaves it open to like literary subtext. I mean, uh, yeah, that's like like Samuel Beckett or something. Like the words always have a context of like existential mm-hmm. angst and despair, but it, it's never actually explicitly said. And I I feel like that's that's valid. I don't even think that the reading of him dying i don't think that negates what i read into the movie like him not having much time left in the world could be an impetus for him getting this off his chest about whatever happened in the family's past like at at best emotional abuse like you can tell from scene one that these are not healthy uh relationships that the family has with each other i think that those two readings can actually inform each other right but most readings of the film do not include mine at all so it's like a weird either every other person in the world has misinterpreted this film or i have which seems like a less uh well, like a more likely know. scenario well you didn't know and it doesn't seem like the film made it clear mm-hmm. you know with that aids subtext so i mean I, I think it is still recommendable though even if you read it the other way um it has kind of like a tracy let's play kind of like confinement to it i'm thinking of specifically of august osage county mm-hmm. that like uh explosive darkly funny like family, family conflict dynamic, yeah uh, i think there's something really funny and just like tense about the movie and it's got that sort of stage play abstractness to it that i think is really interesting one well, also the w- way you're describing the use of pop music too it interests me a lot it does end on the most cliche pop music needle drop i've ever heard in my life though what song uh it's that song's like oh lordy troubles with god oh yeah uh, is that moby or something? some shit like that yeah, yeah yeah uh that song is so overused in like movies from like 20 years ago that to hear it now is like just so painfully yeah like, eye roll worthy but other than that that was my one knock for the film honestly was the music uh even when they're talking uh the dialogue has this sort of like orchestral swell to it so like I was saying, like Marion Cotillard is like communicating something with her eyes, and on the soundtrack, like these violins just get louder and louder, more like operatically intense, and it does teeter between like actual opera and like soap opera. Like it's got like it's very delicate balance, but I like those kind of I like that kind of like hint of cheese in like your over the top. It's that family drama. That, yeah, that melodrama. Like yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of soap operas. I, I think I would I would dig this film. I'll have to check that one out. I want people to watch it just so someone will talk to me about yeah, what the yeah. fuck I saw in it. Because I feel so alone <laughs> right yeah, now. Yeah, I'll watch it soon and we'll have to discuss. Okay, well the next two movies I'm going to go through quickly because they're not as interesting. But they were fairly good. Uh, one was called The Unknown Girl. Uh, this is directed by the Darden Brothers. Um, who did that movie Two Days, One Night with Mary Cotillard. Yeah, I really like them. They've done some good stuff. Well, they started off doing documentaries Mm -hmm. about, like, socially conscious issues like poverty and, like, immigration and stuff like that. Um, Two Days, One Night has that context to it as well, where she's, like, Mary Cotillard's, what, like, a a worker who has to, like, beg for her job, pretty much? Yeah, she has to convince the other workers to basically let her keep her job. And it's, like, a menial job. It's not like she's, like, begging for, like, a great position in the world like she just wants to be able to get by Uh, and they have that sort of like political subtext to their work um this one's really no different it's a young doctor who ignores a late night doorbell ring at her practice uh so it's like hours after she's closed she ignores the doorbell she finds out the next day that the person who was rang her door was a young woman who desperately needed help and was like basically being chased uh and she was murdered that night and what happens is it's sort of a reverse murder mystery She's not trying to uncover the identity of the killer, 
even though that is the kind of thing that you expose when you ask questions, she's more trying to find the identity of the victim just so she can bury them with, like, the right name. Like, she's going to pay for the funeral plot because she feels so guilty about ignoring mm. this woman's plea for help that she wants her to be buried with the proper name so that if someone comes looking for her, they can go visit her grave. Basically trying to find, like, the circumstances that led to them being, like, chased through the night like that. And through doing the medical rounds and asking people questions, uh, there's, like, some kind of ridiculous scenes where she's, like, measuring someone's pulse uh, on her medical rounds is sort of like a makeshift lie detector test to like try mm. to get answers about certain clues that she has. The way that all unfolds is basically she drifts through the lives of people who are on like social security or like uh, poor alcoholics, domestic abuse, like immigration, human trafficking. Mm-hmm. There's all these like under the surface like social issues that I guess the Darden brothers are more interested in than like the murder mystery plot at, at the top of it. Um, it was pretty good. I'm not. I'm not gonna say like I loved it, uh, but it was. It was a pretty good movie. And if you were interested in today's one night, I, I can't see why you wouldn't be interested in this one as well. Uh, the okay. next. The next movie I saw was Things to Come, uh, starring Isabelle Huppert. Speaking of like overly used French actors. Oh yeah. Um, this is sort of a uh, PG-13 like reflection of aspects of L, but without the like sexual abuse provocation of that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, she is sort of isolated and mistreated by her family and her co-workers and her uh, husband and, like, a cat. Like, the same kind of ways that Elle is isolated in, in the Verhoeven film. And this one, it's only happening because she's a middle-aged woman. And, like, the main conceit of the film is that, like, when women reach a certain age, people don't know what to do with them. Like, she's no longer got any, like, sexual offers from people her profession sort of leaving her behind for younger more affordable um workers mm-hmm. and uh she's just sort of like left to wait to die and she has to like find fulfillment in the world within herself because no one else is giving it to her um so there's kind of like a sadness to that's it fucking depressing yeah <laughs> um there's a movie last year called maggie's plan writ- written by arthur miller's daughter rebecca miller oh okay uh this is um, a screwball comedy about um, f- basically philosophy professors that get wrapped up in this sort of goofy love triangle. It's got like Greta Gerwig and Julianne Moore and Ethan Hawke in it. Things to Come with Isabelle Huppert is kind of like a more serious reflection of that. Like there's like so many scenes of Isabelle Huppert reading philosophy uh, either out loud or just like to herself on a train or like out in nature. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's like an f- undercurrent of like philosophical thought um, in both of those films. And they got kind of the same plot to them, but this one was just more like a quietly sad drama with like that just happened to have some funny moments as opposed to Maggie's Plan, which was more of like a crowd-pleasing screwball comedy. And like I was saying with Rochefort, I'm more inclined to fall in love with that kind of movie. So this felt just like a like an okay echo of that Maggie's Plan to me. Um, but I did enjoy it more than Elle, which I fucking hated, so... <laughs> really? She's uh, a great actress in both films. Like, she's really good. I just didn't think either movie was particularly good. I still haven't seen Elle, but I love Paul Verhoeven, so... I have a feeling you'll really like it. I was not a fan. But... Really? <laughs> that brings me to Thursday night, to a film that we actually watched together for Yay. a change. <laughs> we saw this documentary called Swagger. Uh, it's from music video director Olivier ba- Babinet. I can't pronounce his name. Um, <laughs> I ain't even gonna try. So he directs music videos typically. He did this documentary about 11 kids who live in housing projects in France. And the movie has a non-linear 
kind of structure to it where he just basically asks them to talk about their feelings on topics as wide ranging as just like love and fashion and death and Politics. immigration just like but without trying to connect any of that into a story it's more just like a portrait of each kid um, you and I had a completely different reaction to this film. I really liked it. You were not quite as I'm high not, on it. Yeah, I'm not very high on it. I'm high on it from the technical standpoint. Like, it was gorgeous. Like, it honestly, lots of it just didn't even look like a documentary. Like, mm-hmm. there's all this slow motion and there's scenes of, like, a camera that's, like, inside of one of the kids' rooms and then it slowly pans out and you see the entire housing complex like i guess they put the camera on like a drone that was my question because you can see there's a lot of overhead shots of suburbs outside france or like out exterior shots of the housing projects with these gigantic ugly buildings yeah um and those are obviously like drone shots but mm-hmm. the transitions from the exterior to the interior almost looked like cgi from like a modern like marvel movie or something like there's something really impressive about that photography yeah i don't i no, I'm with you. I don't quite know how they pulled it off, but it's it's really amazing. Like I love those sort of shots. Like and the fact that he did music videos before is very apparent. Like there's you know the scene where they're in the welding class and they're doing a little dance routine and just the scene of one of the kids and like he's decked out in like his fur mm-hmm. coat and he's walking slow motion Regis, down the hall. Or Regis, Regis, yeah, uh, who definitely steals the movie. There's this one particular kid who has the most outlandish sense of fashion, and you can tell he has like a future. Once he's like able to move out of those projects into like onto his own in the city, that kid has an eye for like fashion. Oh yeah, and he, he knows his stuff great. too. And he also like he has a great scene where he talks about days of our lives. Yeah, that's um, the thing. Like the movie will just let them ramble about anything, and he talks about days of our lives plots for what like two minutes straight. Right, and I think that that's the parts that I enjoyed more than the kind of meandering. Like, oh, we're going to ask him about love and death and obama and poverty and immigration and because that kind of fell flat for me because it wasn't really focused in any way whereas when they really let the kids like show their just personality like the one girl is talking about mickey mouse and how scary she has like a conspiracy theory about mickey mouse taking over the world right and the movie just allows her to explain the conspiracy theory in an incompletion uninterrupted for a good like two minutes yeah and that that i love because i felt like i was really getting to know the kids on like a deeper personal level but for most of the film they really did just seem like kind of placeholders and i get that it's supposed to give this broad view of them and their situation but i kind of wish it would have focused on those three or four kids that like really like have this like out there you know swagger like the name of the movie this like really out there personality and kind of went deeper into their lives instead of broadly touching on 11 different kids well okay so the common thread that the kids have is that they're all either first or second great generation immigrants right living in these like french housing projects right Um, and they're from places as like widely varied as like senegal or india or just like remote Mm -hmm. african villages that is the only thing they have in common and they are spread out over 11 personalities because you do get to see like a wide breadth of these stories. And it, I think it does focus more on the three or four more interesting yeah. characters. Um, but what it does that I found interesting, instead of like trying to tell a story where you have these talking heads coming in, talking about their lives and stuff, um, you just sort of like get glimpses of it between each one. 
and the connections that they make to between them are in these reaction shots. So like if Kid A is talking for a minute about uh, certain things, then reaction shots of Kid B are sort of like interjected in there. Their dialogue overlaps with like the facial expressions of another another kid, and it, the movie sort of finds a sort of like lim- lyrical common ground between them by mixing those two um, yeah I, stories at the same time. Did you get the sense that the kids like were in the same? They're in the same room a lot of times. Yeah. Right? So it seems like the way they would film that is ha- interviewing like kind of both kids at the same time, asking them the same questions and a camera on each and then showing the reaction. Yeah. So if like one, one kid said something that they disagree with, you see that like disagreement in their face or if it resonates, they're like, Oh yeah. Like you can see them like kind of nodding along, but they're never shown in the same shot. Like they're in the same room, but it's you very rare it's that you see them room. together. Yeah. Um, and like you said, there's like sort of like a style over substance, like music video aspect to it, which I really love in all my movies. Like style over substance is like a is a plus for me, um, but it's weird to see it adapted to a documentary format um, as opposed to like a narrative. But, film. but then why choose such a kind of sort of heart wrenching subject as like kids, immigrants in France living in in poverty? If you're going to just stylize it and not go like deep into their inner like feelings. Well, I don't see it as a heart wrenching story. Not this version of it. The, the main point of the movie to me, from what I could tell was to humanize these kids. Cause right. you have like, uh, in France they're they're having the same conversations that the like Trump supporters are having in right, this country. Anti-immigration. Where you're, you're painting these kids as basically like tiny terrorists. Like basically like terrorists in training. Mm-hmm. And what the movie shows you is that they're not that. They're just regular children. Like they are just as excited about like Beyonce and Fast and the Furious. Fe- like yeah. these are the things they care about. Um, and it is kind of insane how much Western culture like permeates their daily lives. But it uh, or like American culture. I mean, yeah, I thought that was like an illuminating part was just the influence that American pop culture has all over the world and and also like informs kind of the way that they view success. Right. To like the you know, the kid Regis that dresses I don't know, kinda in that that style is like a kinda like Kanye five years ago. When yeah. Kanye used to wear those big fur jackets and like the tight pants, like uh and he like references stuff like Alexander McQueen and like right. all these like designers, like he knows his stuff. And yeah, and I feel like he got that from like American uh, like rap music. Yeah, well, Probably. if you're if you're gonna like tell a, a messed up version of the story, like a like a poverty porn version of the story, you would hear from Regis about how he's been bullied for like homophobic reasons or things like that. The movie doesn't focus on their like pain. It's it's more um, it's more just letting them talk. There's no, like, talking heads coming in, like, telling you about these kids' lives. You just listen to them talk, and you start Mm -hmm. to realize their personalities through what they think. Like, there's even a character, or character, there's even a child in this movie who can't remember anything from her own life. Right, she, that's an interesting example. You could tell, she can't even, like, say her own name in the beginning. Like, that scene really got to me. Like, she's just stuttering and can't even. Yeah. Like, and you know that there's, like, some deep trauma there, and I wanted as a viewer, I wanted to find out like what happened to this girl. Like this is, seems like she's been through something so traumatic and they never ask or they never try to get into it. They just sort of present her as she is on the surface. And I, you know, I, that's fine. 
Um, I, it reminded me so much of Rodney Asher's films, who he is a divisive documentarian. Um, he did Room 237, which is about the conspiracy theories that surround The Shining. The Shining yeah. uh, and he did a movie called The Nightmare, which is about yeah. sleep paralysis. And I loved both of those. I think it's the same thing. Like You're allowing these subjects, almost like in a oral history type fashion, like anthropology, where you're just letting them talk and tell their own story without any processing the information like it's just raw information there's no editorializing what they're saying and saying it's wrong or like actually this is happening basically you allow them to talk and then you boost the information and make it more visually interesting by adding all these like like you said like uh there's a choreographed welding mask like dance party in the middle mm-hmm. there's this, this ridiculous sci-fi dystopia that scene came out of nowhere with like these like way, cgi like... drones like searching through the kids rooms for like that was like a, a ve- security state. That was a very weird, like, detour. It took, like, they're kind of describing the surveillance state or whatever, and then we get this, like, two-minute scene of, it's like a sci-fi movie, and it's completely out of nowhere. But it's it's following what the kids are saying. I know. I, I, <laughs> oh, we got a storm coming through here. No, I like that, because that, like, to go to the nightmare, which I... I loved mm-hmm. the style kind of enhanced the substance right. and the subject matter. In this one, it kind of felt like two separate things were going on. You, you had the stylized kind of music video kind of stuff. And then you just had these just straight up like interviews with the children. And for me, it never really, the two didn't really connect in a meaningful way for me. I, I think it does a good job of, allowing these kids to seem like normal everyday humans and in itself that is a political act in the current political environment i feel like giving a voice to these kids and making their illusions of grandeur of like their personal style like empowering them when they walk down the halls they'll do a music video like slow motion strut where everyone is like oh my god look how beautiful his jacket is yeah uh I feel like giving their fantasies a visual aspect and just allowing them to talk about their personal musings on like love and what it means to wear a fancy jacket to school. Mm-hmm. I think there is an important political aspect to that, even if on the surface it seems like it's just music video like fluff. Uh, I think I think there's a lot more subtext in the movie that I honestly find more valuable than if I just watched a dry documentary about Mm -hmm. what kids lives in like a a current French housing project would be like I don't think a as many people would be able to pay attention to it and b it wouldn't be as insightful as actually asking the kids what their daily lives were like yeah I I see your point I I would agree with that too I would not have preferred it to be drier in a sense like I guess more I would want it to be like more of what we're talking about where they just like accent kind of what the kids are saying with like cool visuals. But a lot of times I sort of like was zoning out when the kids were just kind of talking about what, you know, whatever. I think it's going to be a divisive film if it actually gets like distribution enough for people to actually see it. The same way that Rodney Asher's films, like some people hate that movie about The Shining, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of the same thing where like, it's not telling you anything like from a historical standpoint of what like Kubrick actually was doing with that film. It's just showing you the power of what that film can inspire as far as like internal thought goes. Kind of mm-hmm. like with that um It's Only the End of the World film. Like the storytelling style of that movie gave me this whole internal dialogue about what was going on in it. 
and I don't even know if that reading is valid, but it says something about the power of the filmmaking that right. it can inspire that kind of thought. Um, and I feel like the same information is being promoted in Swagger, where it's like, this is this is the raw information. You do with it what you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of people are going to find that frustrating because it feels like it's just like saying that's the truth. Usually in a documentary, what someone's saying is supposed to be like h- hard, cold facts. Right. Uh, this isn't like that. It's like more of like a soft truth and like a personal truth. And like I said, oral history. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's just like letting the kids talk and then broadcasting what they're saying. I think ultimately I would have liked it more if it was just like a 45 minute or yeah. 30 to 45 minute thing instead of it. it for me, it dragged. Yeah, there's no narrative of, to it. So yeah, an 80 minute film I could see being a little trying. But, but I, I would still recommend it though, for sure. Well, the closing film for the festival is one I've been looking forward to for way too long. Uh, it's called Personal Shopper. Yeah. It's from director Oliver Assayas. Probably mispronouncing that as well. Uh, he also directed Clouds of Seals Maria with um, Kristen Stewart. And here she's returning to, to work with him as the main character. Whereas that one, she split a lot of the time with um, Julia Binoche. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is basically just like the Kristen Stewart show. She carries the film really well. I, th- I thought her performance was one of the best things about the movie. And the movie uses her sort of natural tics really well. She's nervous in the film because she's communicating with the dead as like a spiritual medium. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's sort of asking the ghost world to like show her signs of her Her dead brother's presence. And that leads to, of course, like scary horror movie kind of moments. So her usual nervousness where she's always touching her face or like nervously like skittering about is something that that she usually uses in her performances and I feel like the movie employs that really well. Well, and also the fact that she has this heart condition that her brother died from mm-hmm. where if she gets too too excited or heart rate gets up too much like she could just die. Right. Basically. And Kristen Stewart is kind of known for having that like James Dean kind of like detachment where she like doesn't emote very strongly. Yeah, and that works with that this works character. With the story. Yeah, because she has to be detached cuz if she gets too involved in anything like she could die so there's always that lingering fear of death mm-hmm. i feel like so you and i were supposed to see this closing night cc got locked out of the house so i had to like <laughs> run home so we ended up seeing it separately what what did you think overall i actually really really enjoyed this movie first what i'll say is like kristen stewart's performance grounds the movie and i think that this plot is a little ridiculous and with a lesser actor who could have like hammed it up a little bit and not taken the subject matter seriously, it would have fallen flat. But she grounds it in this like real emotional like kind of performance that gives this movie some weight to it. And another thing I really admired about it that I think some of the critics will see as a negative is how tonally inconsistent. Mm-hmm. It is. It jumps from being like a horror ghost story haunted house thing to like a psychological kind of thriller to there's also a couple of scenes of like comedy thrown in there. And it feels very kind of uneven and tonally all over the place. But that's something that actually kept me interested because I don't know like, OK, what's it going to be now? It kept changing. I thought also that parts of it were just really scary yeah, honestly, like the I thought the ghosts, the thing with the the ghosts and all that were was very well done. I thought yeah. the idea of like the ghost story was the most interesting part of this. 
Like, if you want to talk about the plot being ridiculous, it is kind of silly. Like, she's in France. Like, the title says she's a personal shopper in Paris, buying all these expensive clothes and jewelry for a model who doesn't have time to shop for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, so she goes to all these boutiques and, like, tries on fancy clothes and buys it for this lady. Meanwhile, she's communicating with a ghost. At first, in, like, the traditional sense where you, like kind of hold like a one-person seance where you're like asking an show empty yourself. room show yourself um but later in the film she's communicating through texts and it's kind of silly to watch someone talk to the afterlife through a smartphone uh and there is kind of like an absurdity to that now is that talking to the ghost or is that i thought that was talking to the spoilers should i not no <laughs> okay talking to the ghost okay we'll just say that you think that she's talking to the ghost through the phone. There you go. It's a question, though. And even at the end of the movie, there's a question. Like, she is never sure of herself, like, who she's communicating with. If she is talking to a ghost, if it's her brother. If it's not a ghost, it might just be, like, some other presence that's just beyond our, like, perceivable plane. Like, there's sort of an abstract mystery to who she's even talking to at all times. And watching her communicate through text messages that in that way is pretty interesting. It's Yeah, I, th- I mean, I-, I thought the text message scenes were actually, they worked on a couple of different levels where one, it shows her, her isolation from society, like, and she's sucked into, like, technology and her smartphone. But also, those scenes, like, are very thrilling, too, like... There's one part where she turns off her phone, uh, she turns it back on, she's in her apartment, and the texts start rolling in, mm-hmm. and you see, like, 15 minutes ago, they said, like, I'm, I'm coming over. Way. <laughs> Five minutes, I'm outside your door. Like, that really was, like, chilling and well done. I, I don't want to get into spoiler territory, but... There's, I, like, a mist. There, there's, a like, almost murder mystery aspect to the center of the film. But I, I think that that's, like, secondary... I mean, it's a character study about her. Mm -hmm. The one idea I kept going back to as I was watching it was like the idea of her being the ghost in the sense of like having to shop for someone else. Like, and the way she interacts with people, it's like she's not even really there. She's like a placeholder for this other woman. And the way she just kind of meanders through her life and can't get over her brother, it's like she's the walking dead, you know? And so. And that kind of comes back at the end when she's questioning, like, are these ghosts real? Am I? Is it all in my head? Well, also, it's her twin brother who died. And like you said, he had the same heart condition. So it's almost like, yeah, she died already, like, before the movie even starts. Yeah, and that's the sense I kept getting watching her was, like, like she's not even alive. Like, she's not, she's not living. And that's kind of her character arc where she eventually, like, decides, like, no, I want to be... I want to be alive. Like I need to move away from Paris and like actually live my life. So I thought that was the central kind of theme to the movie. And I thought that it actually kind of hit that out of the park for me. Like all this sort of secondary stuff, the murder mystery didn't really matter Mm -hmm. in the end. Like, yeah, after that's resolved, there's still a few more beats, like still, still four more plot points that you have to go through because the story was never really about that it's about how how she's navigating this world where she's waiting for for a sign from her her brother's like afterlife presence yeah so so she can like move on right with her life and she's just waiting um i like one thing that like i really appreciated was the idea of like abstract art being like used as like a context provider in this mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the movie is her researching klimt uh this like abstract painter Mm -hmm. um 
and watching these sort of like mini documentaries about Klimt on her smartphone. And there's something interesting about sort of contextualizing your movie as an abstract piece where, yeah, it is a ghost story and it is a murder mystery, but like if you're just watching her react and go through these uh, sort of absurd situations, there's something more there. I feel like the abstract art, like the Klimp stuff, asks you to reach a little further than just like genre film entertainment. You know, like there's like some other philosophical thing going beyond the movie. Yeah. As far as, far as just like its narrative. So then what, because you didn't sound as thrilled about no. it as I did. What didn't work for you? Um, the same thing with Clouds of Sils Maria, where I thought that the performances were like world class, like really great acting performances in both films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they both have such good moments like there's like so many specific scenes of personal shopper that i think are fantastic one of the early scenes where she's just alone in her brother's old house uh asking to hear from his ghost and like other things start communicating with her instead it's really intense and it's really well done i just at the end of the movie i left just not in love i don't know if it's me being too overhyped for too long to go see it i just didn't ultimately think the movie had that strong of an idea to communicate and sort of watching her drift through this, like you said, like this, like afterlife, almost like, almost like she's a ghost watching yeah, her drift through Paris just, is yeah. not necessarily the most compelling thing to me considering where it ends. Like there's a couple, the last two like plot moments after the murder mystery is wrapped up. I just didn't find the destination satisfying enough uh, mm-hmm. to sort of justify the slow drift before it. I do think it's more satisfying than Clouds of Souls Maria, though. I think this is a step up. Oh, um, really? I yeah. thought you enjoyed that one a lot. No? No, it was fine. I, th- I thought this one was good. You know, I, I'm just not, like, rapturously in love with it. Well, it might have to do... Like, I read very little about it mm-hmm. beforehand, so I kind of went in cold, and it kind of took me by surprise that it hit all these different sort of genres, and uh thought it did them all pretty well honestly i think it's worth seeing like i just think that you should go in not expecting to be like overly wowed like (laughs) there are representations of ghosts in this movie that don't look all that different to me than like something like the frighteners from like 15 years ago see i I like the i like the sort of cheesy cgi staticky looking ghosts like i like how sort of cheap it looks i almost feel like it cheapens the movie to a point like if you're gonna make this like artsy abstract art piece it should have something new to add to the ghost genre like if you strip this down as a ghost movie it doesn't have that much to add to the way we represent and communicate with ghosts in cinema no it's kind of like you know she watches that youtube video of what is it the victor hugo hugo seance Mm -hmm. or whatever and that's how she communicates with her brother towards the end and there's weird little little moments like that sprinkled throughout the whole whole thing that kind of was keeping me interested as it was going along i i think it adds something new to the ghost genre though in the sense that like like i was saying it's almost like a sixth sense like she's the actual dead one Right. Goes, but it's not like it's not it's not like a Shyamalan twist where like you find that out at the last. No, second. it's more like a metaphor, mm-hmm. and I don't know if we really have seen that a lot in in ghost stories in the past. Like so, bringing it the idea of ghosts and using it as a metaphor for kind of living an unfulfilled life 
in the present. I do think that that was like a kind of like cool idea that was executed very well. I mean, I, I don't want to sound negative on it because I did enjoy the movie. So I can't say that much about it. The, like knocking that idea because I do mm-hmm. think that's interesting. Um, I just like I can see already this coming up on like best of the year lists or even further down the line, like best of the decade. <laughs> and uh, I don't yeah. think it's that exciting. Like I don't want people to go in with that high of expectation because the movie is a lot more muted in the things it's trying to do than that. I, I don't think I'll be remembering back on this film when I'm like trying to like yeah. think of like what represents the exciting new places films are going. I don't think personal shoppers trying to reach heights that high. And if it is, I don't think it gets there. I don't know. I, I could see maybe like cracking like a, a top 20 for me or something, but not, no, I don't think it's going to be on any like year end list yeah. for me either. But yeah, you know, that doesn't I mean, matter. I mean, yeah, that's kind of a like silly thing to like, that's just the, the, not the, the expectations movie going right. into it, which I didn't have any. So yeah, I, it kind of exceeded my expectations where you were well, already heard the hype. I'm also everything. just frustrated because Kristen Stewart is, I think, one of the more interesting act- actors working right now. And I just don't see her being... This movie uses her well, but not for a purpose that's that transcendental. Like, I'm waiting for her to have her big right. moment where she's, like, recognized for the art she's been pulling off for the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of break away from that cloud of, like, Twilight uh, criticism that's still hanging over her. And I think that she's getting the respect for movies like this, but I'm just not personally falling in love with them as much as I want to yet. Yeah, I, I would say I loved her performance maybe more than the movie as a whole. I 100% I think agree was, with that. I think she was... One of, if not the best things about this movie. Totally. Um, well, if you want to read more about these movies individually, I will be slowly reviewing them on SwampFlix.com. Every day I'm going to try to get a little closer to getting all 10 of these movies reviewed. There were 14 films at the festival. I saw 10 of them. There may have been something we missed, but I feel like that's a pretty good summation of what we saw at French Film Fest this year. Um, and hopefully next year there'll be just as many good movies. I enjoyed it. Even the ones I didn't love, I I thought were interesting. So, all right, well, we'll see y'all in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.